0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, a podcast all about getting fantastic children's books into the hands of readers. I'm Charlotte Eyre and this podcast is brought to you by the Bookseller and Rocket. Today's guest is Maz Evans, the author of the Who Let the Gods Out series, which has sold in 19 countries worldwide, I think, and the Vice Buy series. She is going to talk to us about writing and selling funny children's books when you are not a famous comedian. Just a quick editorial note, this interview was recorded a few weeks ago, so Maz might mention things being published in the future when they have in fact already come out. Maz, hello and welcome to the podcast. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm confused, not a famous comedian, I, why am I here? And,
1: and, it's, and it's 20 countries, but you know, who's all checking? It's, there you go. One, what's one hard-won territory between friends Charlotte? fine, let's move straight on, it's not a problem at
0: all need to have a word for Chicken House and get them to update your uh your bio I, I think they'd be counting. I know I have. <laughs> so yes, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us today. Let's start at the beginning. How did you become a children's author?
1: entirely sure actually <laughs> uh, it's useful for me to explore it so um i have always been a writer I, I literally i've had one job uh it is the only talent i was given and you know check my Goodreads. not not everyone thinks i was given very much of it so um i was a journalist can you imagine the uh, for uh, 15 years first and I got variously taught and I've taught writing and I mm-hmm. you know, could have kind of circled that drain for a very long time before in my mid-30s, uh, mid-20s, uh, early 20s, deciding <laughs> that it was time to jump in and, and have a go myself and I originally wrote Who Let the Gods Out which is my debut uh, children's novel actually 11 years ago now terrifyingly. And I was quite convinced I'd written the next Harry Potter and was going to retire from the proceeds of my advance and go live aboard a yacht uh, for the rest of my days. <laughs> so that was my first thought about publishing, um, like a lot of people do. And uh, strangely, publishing did not share my my massive enthusiasm for my manuscript, and it was turned down flat by everybody. Uh, so I sort of went into a bit of a bit of a huff for a minute and didn't write anything for about five years, had irresponsible numbers of children, Mm -hmm. uh, and then came back to and actually decided to self-publish Who Let the Gods Out originally, because I was going around schools running creative writing workshops. So I kind of thought, I kind of got captive audience here, so Mm -hmm. I can can literally scare children into buying my book, Uh, which is a tactic that works very well, actually. We'll discuss more later. Um, (laughs) So I self-published it and actually kind of did okay. I sold a couple of thousand copies, and that sort of got the attention of the agent who turned it down five years previously. And she read <laughs> it again, really liked it this time. And uh, off we went and chicken house bought it. So it was a very odd route into publishing, but one that has um, served me very well, I think. Being a self-published author is, is pretty good preparation, actually, for being a, a traditionally published author.
0: And did you change much or anything at all about the story? Over those years,
1: I changed a little bit. I mean, um, the, there were additional characters that came in. So one of my favourite characters to write was the sociopathic Patricia Porcelain Plum, known to oh all me too. Parents. Patricia Horse's bum who's just I mean as you well know when you write anything it gets it gets the very heck edited out of it all the time but Patricia Porsche Plum chapters we never changed a word it turns out I can inhabit the consciousness of a psychopath with incredible unedited ease so uh let's make of that what you will so she came in but but not really and and the changes I wanted to make to be honest came from me not from Chicken House because you know you you know writers Charlotte I got the opportunity to rewrite my book you know which of us (laughs) wouldn't take that so um it changed from five books to four that was the the only other kind of change in the series which, which was a good change I'm sure but no, no not not a great deal really it just I think I'd learned to write a little bit better yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the ensuing five years I did it up a bit
0: so let's talk about what it's about so it's about a boy called Elliot um he cares for his mum and they're in danger of losing the family home because yep. this awful woman who you just mentioned wants to yes. take over the farm Absolutely. um but then he comes into contact with Virgo, a zodiac goddess.
1: Very, you're better at this than the territories. Well done. You're scoring much <laughs> higher, much higher. Um,
0: and then they release a wicked demon, and they've got to turn to the Olympic gods to, <laughs> to help really them out.
1: Stupid when you say it out loud. No, it's it not. It it's brilliant. A great pitch this book. <laughs> it's quite common. Yes, it's about a young carer yeah. called Elliot Hooper who encounters the uh, the present day immortal community and this was the spark that that this idea came from that obviously if the gods are immortal they never died so mm-hmm. where are they and where are they in the modern world unbeknownst to me um a chap called Rick Riordan had had a similar idea don't know how he did with it but um but yes great minds think alike it turns out and yes so Elliot, uh, in in the first book particularly has to uh, save his farm from the dastardly developer Patricia Portly Plum uh, unbeknownst to him his mother is uh, living with early onset dementia Mm. Uh, and Elliot like uh, indeed a lot of young carers it's just them in the world he doesn't want to tell anybody because he's so terrified that uh, his mother will be taken away from him if the extent of her illness becomes clear to sort of adult authorities so the whole series is really between uh, this terrible pull as he gets drawn into the mythological world and he's trying to save the world from Thanatos this evil demon he accidentally releases from beneath Stonehenge. Uh, He has to save the world on the one hand, but Thanatos offers him the one thing that gods never can, which is he offers him uh, to save his mother. So Mm. uh, Elliot is pulled in this horrific dilemma. Does he save the world or does he save his world? And yes, I put the poor child through that for four whole books uh, before we find any sort of resolution. So yeah, horrible me.
0: Yeah. and I mean, people always say you're a funny writer because and the books are really, really funny, but... You know, maybe we don't talk enough about the fact you're writing about young carers and there's there's a lot of sadness around his story, isn't there?
1: Well, and I think in comedy writing in general, I mean, I don't know a contemporary comedy children's book that doesn't have a really meaty issue in there mm. somewhere. And I think that's why, and you know, I'm sure we're going to get onto this, uh, where some of my some sort of chagrin about about the slight dismissal of comedy comes from, because actually you've got books that deal with loss and divorce and grief and illness and you know all the big stuff, whilst trying to sort of do it in a in a way that entertains and kind of never makes light of, of these issues, but somehow makes them, you know, something that you can live with rather than mm. live against. And yes, the um the, the when I first tried to get Who Let the Gods Out away. The thing that publishing didn't like about it was that it is this odd hybrid of humour and, and and tragedy in, in certain you know, moments in who let the gods out. But actually, that's become its big selling point, I think. And I'm certainly I'm not the first writer to have done it, but I'm, I'm glad to see more of that blend kind of coming through because... Kids, you have to remember, children live their life on this very extreme emotional scale, far more so than adults do. So they can go from wild laughter to wild tears in 2.6 seconds flat in perhaps the way that we don't. So it doesn't strike them as odd that they can be very happy about something one minute and very sad the next. And it's turned out, you know, the thing that held God's back, it seems to be, has has turned into its USP. (laughs) Thank goodness. I was a bit lucky, (laughs) wasn't it?
0: (laughs) So the first book came out with Chicken House in 2017. And um, did you feel like an instant success or did you, is it, did the sales grow over time? What was I the was point 37, when really Charlotte. <laughs> Eyre. Nothing about
1: life was an instant success lady. Let's be very clear about that. Yeah, I worked very hard to become an overnight success. Well, of course, I mean, I got the golden ticket, which was the Waterstones children's book of the month. And, you know, as you well know, you cannot overestimate the power of that particular mm-hmm. promotion. And, it, you know, I mean, it rocket launched the start of my career as it, as it does for anybody who has it. And I, you know, will forever be indebted to it and still I mean that one month I was Waterstones Book of the Month four years ago still accounts for about 10% of the total sales of that title still four years later I mean it's that powerful um and I was very lucky I think I mean people really took to it really really quickly and um I you know I I wouldn't say I'm a success now so I certainly wasn't a success then but I think I had a, a an easier route into publishing than a lot of people have because people really did get behind it. It sold well internationally quite quickly, and there was quite a nice buzz about it. And and you know, I was very fortunate it got sort of awards nods and, and things like that. So I think I was I I am very, very lucky. And you, my dear, were one of the very first people uh who came out and said how much you liked it, which I know was was massively helpful, and why I'm still hoovering your carpets four years later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's
1: great. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate it.
0: <laughs> um tell Mick, talk to us about um events and you know, live events with children. What do you do and what works when you're kind of performing to kids?
1: Well, not a lot for the past 12 months, no, uh, okay. it turns out, which has been very an interesting time to, to reflect on sort of what works when promoting books. Perhaps we'll talk about that in a bit. But events have have been everything for me. I mean, that's really been where I've grown my readership and where um, you know, because even with something huge like the Waterstones promotion, it's a month. And you know, every book, you know, particularly the first of the series, you get your time in the in the sun, and then really it's over to you. Publishers can't be promoting everything, you know, all the time they've got the next you know, author's book. So events have really been it for me. And I mean, I have done hundreds, probably thousands in the last few years now. And whilst it has nearly killed me, I'm old, Charlotte, too old uh, to leap around on stage. In this lockdown period, it's it, I can really see the dividends now because, you know, I've got hopefully um, I've got the most wonderful readership in the world. My God squad. They are super supportive and, and super lovely. Um, but for me, the key has been schools. Uh, festivals are fantastic and they're brilliant. But with festivals, you know, and I don't think any of them will mind me saying, there is, to an extent, you're kind of preaching to the choir, you're preaching to a a base that's very pro-reading, that's very engaged with reading, that probably has a lot of books, that does a lot of reading at home. Whereas schools are so powerful because you can reach those kids who are not going to be taken to literary festivals, are not going to be taken to a bookshop event for whatever reason. And schools, um, a lot of the work I do uh, is with schools who have a very high pupil premium, so schools that are subsidised, you know, pupils who are subsidised by the government because of their socioeconomic circumstances, And that's really powerful because you can get to kids that you wouldn't otherwise reach as an author. And schools have been massively supportive of God's. I mean, it helps. And of course, this was all part of my brilliantly thought out, you know, career strategy, uh, that uh, ancient Greece is a key stage two topic in schools. So God's just keeps coming around every year. Every time the schools do ancient Greece, there are wallops out who let the gods out, which has massively helped its sort of such longevity as it's had. But schools just generally hopefully they, they feel I'm, I'm, I'm good news and I engage with schools a lot on social media I make sure that you know I, I answer every letter every tweet every email every everything and that's that's been a really important part of, of what I try to do and I think it's really helped
0: buoy me through this you know difficult last year and when you actually go into a school obviously not in the last 12 months what kind of things do you do with the kids <laughs>
1: Hmm. Uh, well I jump around a lot <laughs> uh, I humiliate their teachers massively by getting them up on stage and getting them doing all sorts of silly things and you know nothing will endear you to a, a room of 500 kids than you're know, getting their deputy head teacher up and dancing around on stage um, and then I did I, this side of my offering I'm going to wind down a little bit but I do creative writing workshops in schools because I do feel as an author when you go to schools you need to offer more than essentially a PR kind of plug. Uh, And it's really important that you kind of give something back because we are in a really fortunate position with kids that they will listen to us for one day <laughs> teachers don't get that we can go in and we're new and exciting for one day and we can reinforce all those kind of good messages about reading for pleasure and the importance of editing your work and that yes you can write a story you might not think you can but you can and uh, the importance of creativity and all of those things so uh, that is what I have done historically is go and spend a day at a school and you know speak to the whole school and then work with with smaller groups to do workshops
0: Now, let's touch on something that you mentioned earlier. Uh, You have been vocal, and you are not the only author to be vocal about this, about the fact that funny books for kids don't always get the kudos that they deserve. Tell me about that, and when did you notice that that was a thing?
1: um well it's obviously an incredibly self-serving thing that I'm very vocal about <laughs> I'm painfully aware of it but I sort of feel like I can say something because actually I think as a children's comedy author I've fared very well you know I've been shortlisted for all the big awards obviously not won any of them uh, but I can't really necessarily blame the awards for that that could just be my books not good enough yeah, I'm, I'm fully prepared to concede that so you know I was I have been you know nominated for the Carnegie and the Waterstones and the books in my baggie I've done book award bingo which is why i Feel I can say something because it doesn't look too much like sour grapes. I hope, I and mean, I mean this is not exclusive to publishing at all. Of course, a- across all media, comedy is generally undervalued. It is seen as kind of the easy option, exclusively by people who don't do it for a living. Um, you know, people have no idea because with if you watch so think about something you watch on television if you watch a drama and you don't enjoy it people are more likely to go that's not my thing but if they watch something that purports to be a comedy and they don't enjoy it they're more likely to say it's dreadful or yeah it's just not funny because it's not like you there's a a tick box list that you can write to make something funny you know it will be funny to some people and it will be as funny as your root canal to somebody else so even if you do hit it right and write something that's actually funny that's not to say you're gonna hit everybody's humor so and that i think is the difficulty with with awards so you know, to be fair you've got a, a panel of six judges uh, you know as you well know you've sat on many trying to get them to agree on anything is incredibly difficult but particularly what is funny and then for that to be you know um worthier than say something that deals with issues very seriously but my thing is as i said earlier I don't know a book that doesn't deal a comedy book that doesn't deal with something, you know, really serious and meaty underneath. I mean, the wonderful Jenny Pearson, who uh, I recently read her miraculous life of Freddie Yates, you know, it was about a child who's lost his grandmother and who's in search of his biological father. And it's and and the, the friends who go with them have got various issues going on in their own lives and it deals with but just beautifully through humor and this lovely buddy adventure and yes all the fart gags and all the rest of it <laughs> stuff, but that's not to undermine the brilliance of her writing and storytelling underneath it and I was, I was very pleased to see her shortlisted for the Costa because it's so rare to see you know a comedy book ascend to those heights.
0: Have you spoken to people sort of who run book prizes or in who have some kind of power in this area. And have you have you discussed it to them? Did you get any feedback?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I wrote a piece in a magazine called The Bookseller. Don't know if you know it. Yeah, might have heard of it. Um, but um, you know, they'll, they'll take anything these days. And I wrote <laughs> um a column uh, in the bookseller about when the Carnegie um long list came out this year, because I was brilliant, brilliant long list and now obviously a brilliant short list. But yet again, in 40 books, there's not a funny one in it. And I can't, you know, when I had a look, I think the last funny book to be nominated was Lissa Evans back in, I think, 2017 when Samia Gods came out. And you go, gosh, in four years, that's like 160 books and not one funny book makes the cut? And I wrote a piece about it. And again, I I really hope it doesn't come across as sour grapes. And certainly I am not detracting the valid and deserving achievements of all the writers who are on there. Because they all wrote brilliant books and we can't all be on every list. Um, But I spoke up this year because I haven't published anything for two years. So again, hopefully it doesn't look too mealy-mouthed. But actually it was really lovely. So I wrote the piece in the bookseller. And Jake Hope, who's the chair of the Carnegie... Um, award got in touch with me and we had a really constructive zoom we had a nice hour-long chat about it and it was wonderful to see you know what they are trying to do to make the Carnegie I think the Carnegie is kind of like the mafia it's a little bit shrouded in mystery and a lot of people don't understand how it works Mm. and the the moves that he is making so he's only been in post a couple of years to make it more transparent so people understand how it happens they're looking at their recruitment to make sure that you know their all their judges are are as diverse of you know uh, in every single way in taste as much as uh you know physical or genetic makeup to make sure that you know every taste is is represented and we had a really constructive chat and one of the things they're looking at doing is having some more open fora so that people can kind of feed back to them and it was really and he reached out to me and it was lovely so it was a really nice example hopefully of, of kind of constructive dialogue uh, and if I'm not nominated for the Carnegie next year then obviously I'm going to uh yeah storm out the big hats we have <laughs>
0: You'll know who to speak uh, to. I know
1: that's <laughs> Jake. Oh, we had an understanding. <laughs> I said I send you all that
0: money. Come on. Um do you think that part of the problem is that there are so many books by comedians off the telly? Um, so people who have uh, built a career as being funny on screen before they turn to books.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Celebrity authors. Um, it's it's a tricky one because you know, and I will say that I think the thing that we don't acknowledge about celebrity authors, which we've also got a lot to say about the downside. Is they inject a huge amount of cash into the industry, and I hope, I hope, I hope that some of that cash, at least, is being used, perhaps for publishers to be able to take. If not risks, but invest in perhaps less commercial books that are still equally as important in their way, but they know aren't going to be big sellers, but are there for a readership who perhaps aren't represented normally. So I think we all like to whinge and moan about celebrity authors, but I think we have to accept that you know there has been a rejuvenation. I think in children's publishing that's coming. That's the lot. The words are sticking in my mouth. That's the last nice thing I'm going to say. But yeah, I mean it's if you give any book the pr that those get they're gonna sell you know if my books were on radio two and the one show and every you know saturday supplement and what have you i mean i could i could publish my shopping list under those circumstances and and be guaranteed several thousand book sales so that's the thing i think we all get a bit grumpy about it's two things really that one the the utter dominance of the of the very little pr that there is for children's books has now been completely saturated i mean world book day i was watching a bit of the coverage and you know that there were some sort of career authors but mainly the spokespeople were celebrity authors who've had one book out in the last couple of years and you go "Oh, really them you know we're not Mm. got you know Frank Cottrell Boyce or Mallory Blackman or Jacqueline Wilson or Cressida Cowell you know those are the people who we kind of want to speak for us as an industry I think because they've earned their stripes and it's it, it is the PR thing, but also I think with the celebrity authors, we just a lot of us put a lot of work into schools and interacting with our readership and what have you, and we don't see that from you know the, the community interaction from the celebrity authors, which makes it just a little. We just don't get a bit grumpy about it, but it's you know, but it's it's not possible. equally a rising tide carries all ships, and one has to hope that if someone likes Williams or David Badil, they might go. Well, you need to try David Solomon's, or you really need to try you know Jenny's books or my books mm. or whoever. So. I think we can be grumpy about it, but we've sort of got to learn to live with it a little bit as well.
0: I, I see what you mean. I can see both sides of the argument as well. Our next guest is James Erskine, who is the MD of Rockets and someone who knows all about promoting funny books by celebrity authors and non-celebrity writers alike. Hi, James.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real
0: Can you tell me um, who you are and what you do and why you uh, set up Rocket?
2: Yeah, of course I can. So, uh, Rocket is about 11 or 12 years old. It is a business that helps brands and organisations better understand and better engage youth, children's and family audiences. Back in the day, I did what I term real work. So, t- looking at paid social campaigns, looking at media partnerships, looking at influencer marketing activity. As uh, I get older and older, I seem to do uh, less and less exciting work, but isn't that the way with everybody? But broadly, our business works with brands lots of publishers as well to yeah help talk to those children's and parent audiences so that is why I'm guessing you've got me on here this week
0: Well indeed. Now Maz is talking about um, funny books and that's the theme of this week's show and I I know you guys do a lot of um, work with publishers promoting funny books, funny authors. Talk to me about that specifically as a job. What is it you're looking for either in the book or from the author that you want to bring out to promote a title?
2: Yeah, it's a really, really good point because comedy counts for so much. So the one struggle of every parent is to encourage and to get their children excited to read. And I speak as a parent as well as someone that broadly works in this industry. And comedy is a vital part in that. And what you see from the children themselves is it almost doesn't matter who the author is, it's about the characters and it's about the storyline. And what we find increasingly is... Even when you're looking at, you know, the biggest name writers, the David Bedil's, the David Williamses of this world, even, even the, the Jeff Kinney's, you're, you're taking the author name and that is part of the brand. But often it's that part of the brand that resonates with the parents. The children themselves just want to laugh out loud and, and have something that they find really entertaining. And often you will look at any campaign talking about any specific book, and you are showcasing directly to the children wherever possible that this will make you laugh and this will be good fun.
0: And can you give us a specific example of an author that you worked with and what you did for them?
2: Sure I'll take you right the way back to when I did do uh, you know proper work. We worked with HarperCollins when we launched David Badil as a children's author and Ah. if you look at that now you might think it was the easiest piece of work in the world and It was a really successful debut, it worked very well, and we've worked on a number of his uh, releases since then in the children's market. But the strategy was very clear cut. The strategy was David Baddiel as a name will have resonance with a number of the different parents, whereas the text and the subjects of the book that's what we have to communicate to the children. So actually, we were doing quite a lot of work with David Baddiel, we did the typical author Q&A work, and lots of that stuff was never seen by a child. That was almost to look at the reverse pester power so that the parents could almost say, have you considered the latest David Baddiel book? So that's one example, but you see that time and time again Um, when we were working on Julian Clary's children's release as well, it was very much our point had to be to establish his set of characters and that world for children to engage in directly. So two examples there.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about budgets, because I know um, Maz um, mentions this and authors often say on Twitter that someone like David Badil or... Uh, Ben Miller will have a bigger marketing budget than an unheard of author but if the debut author got the same marketing spend their books could be as big I know this is a really sort of tricky thing to talk about and it's there's probably lots of different factors to it. but can you sort of tease out some thoughts on what you think about that
2: definitely so look there's no debate when we uh when we're working with Julian Clary and we get them on the side of London buses that makes a huge impact but that absolutely comes at a price and there definitely are different budget levels that one can work with. I think when you are looking at smaller budgets, and let's not pretend that that doesn't happen when you are a debut author, when you have got an unproven product, you are often looking at smaller budgets. I think what we then do is focus on the things that drive the connection. So what I mean by that is we look at less brand awareness. So If we were to say, let's say when when Maz was working on her debut, if we were to talk about her name, it wouldn't yet have a currency. So therefore what we've got to do is we've got to lead with the narrative. We've got to lead with the central characters and we have to communicate how those bits are important first. Almost the brand comes second it's a less subtle approach, but it might be that we work with influencers that are talking to families that can absolutely extol the virtues of any particular plot or narrative. It might be that we work with children's audio producers, again, talking about the the characters that are created. So it's almost when there isn't a big budget to support an author, sometimes that's because the budget that is there to support the author would be put in that kind of brand building piece which sometimes when there isn't that brand to be built yet it means that comes further down the line.
0: Interesting and a lot of funny books now also sort of touch upon serious issues as well so they're really really funny but they'll also talk about I don't know grief or maybe there'll be books about coronavirus in the future and do you use those elements of the story as well?
2: Definitely, because what you're trying to do is you're still trying to sell a fairy tale, aren't you? So, and along the way in the fairy tale, there are the the funny bits, and there are the serious undertones. Again, just jumping back to uh, David Bedil's bit, there there is a piece on gaming in there, and it talks about how uh, one of his releases talks about how gaming needn't be the only thing that little children do. There's another one called the Birthday Boy, which is all about how when somebody wants their birthday to be every day of the year, and then by the end of it, they get bored. So there's often that kind of nice tone and that nice kind of finish to make it a more worthy read. And again, that ticks the box of the parents as well as the child directly, which finding that sweet spot. Sometimes you'll find a space in the marketing campaign where you can reach both simultaneously, but more often than not, it is split up by the different interests of the uh, different stakeholders, if you like.
0: Interesting. Okay, and final question really quickly. What are your um, tips for trends in children's book marketing at the moment? What's hot, what's really working?
2: I think as a kind of a helicopter view, stop thinking about selling a book as a product and start selling a story. So these are stories that can be consumed in audio. These are stories that can be consumed in books, but these are characters that might live on a website as well. So start opening the doors to the world of the book. Now, what that means in practice is looking at where one can make an emotional connection, depending on the age of the audience you're looking to reach. It might be that The Week Juniors podcast is perfect because the themes that are discussed in the book are newsworthy. It might mean that if we're just looking to make people laugh, we show that connection and we show children laughing actually at the text wherever possible. It's that emotional connection that's going to work a heck of a lot harder. Than a massive billboard or a side of, side of a bus. I think it's very, very important to look at how you can manufacture and create those moments where you're communicating emotion and getting an emotional response back.
0: Brilliant. Love it. James, thank you very much.
2: That's quite all right. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's do a little bit to promote your new books because very excitingly, you've got two books out. Uh, when was Vice Spy? I was out in February. Vice Spy License was out in February and The Exploding Life of
1: Scarlet Fife is coming in May. So okay. yeah, that was my lockdown last year. I've, I've written six books in lockdown, so they're all going to get thrown at you various ways. Impressive. Well, let's start with Vi Spy. What's it about? So Vi Spy is the start of a new three book series uh, that stars uh, Valentine Day, known to all and sundry as Vi. Uh, And we start right in the thick of things. Vi uh, is rightly suspicious that her mother Easter, Easter Day, uh, is a spy or has been a spy at some point. Easter's done a pretty terrible job of hiding it. And Vi, like all you know, 11-year-old girls, has switched straight on to it very, very quickly. And she's, she's absolutely right. It turns out Easter was uh, a top spy for the top intelligence agency, Spider. But as happens, Charlotte, you know, when you have, when you become a mother, your priorities change a little. And Easter sort of felt that going on, you know, deathly missions every week was not great for her motherhood. Um, and so she retired at the point at which fine was born. Uh, as far as Vi is aware, when we begin, her father was also a spy, and he was killed, as everyone says, as he would have wanted, uh, diffusing a nuclear missile in space moments before it hit the uh, Earth's atmosphere. Uh, so that's Vi. So just as we meet her, her mum, Easter, is about to remarry Vi's form teacher, the lovely but slightly dull George Sprout. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vi is not terribly happy about this on several levels. One, obviously, it's her form teacher, and that's disgusting. Uh, Two, George comes in a sort of marital bog off with Russell, his son, (laughs) Russell Sprout, who is the uber-geek in uh, Vi's class, and she's not terribly happy about being yoked to this particular family. So uh, we go to the wedding. And George and Easter are about to get married when the wedding is interrupted by Vi's father, who it Mm. turns out is not only very much not dead... Uh, he is very much not a spy he's actually a reformed supervillain, villain or so he says and he's very much not divorced from Easter so uh, he hasn't seen Vi for 10 years and he wants back into her life and if Easter wants the divorce so that she can marry George uh, he wants to get to know his daughter so uh, Vi is then in this kind of the uber divorce situation between a mum who used to be a super spy and a dad who used to be a super villain meanwhile of course trying to save the world from Umbra the evil super villain so she's got it all
0: going on. I did enjoy the uh, Jane Eyre-esque interruption of the wedding I have to say (laughs) it really made me laugh and the disco where the disco at the school where all the parents are dancing um, I was laughing so hard that my four-year-old who was trying to watch poor child kept saying stop mummy stop mummy mummy no, Stop!
1: anything i could do that interrupts paw patrol it feels like a service to humanity i have to say <laughs> but it's, um, uh, but yeah it's, it's really good fun and it was after gods because it was very tempting to go back into another sort of folklore or mythology or legend mm. but i was very keen to do something a little bit different so spies spy films and spy books have long been a huge passion of mine so it's fun to go and play in that sandpit for a little while
0: Excellent and then later on in the spring we've got you've got a series coming out with Hachette so tell us about that one.
1: I have it's very exciting it's my first foray into slightly younger fiction so this is a seven to nine series again three books that's my new thing I'm, I'm all about the trilogies now four is just one too many uh so there's gonna be three books in that series illustrated by the brilliant Chris Jevons Evans and Jevons I'm loving this uh, and I've just I was just going to print the moment actually and he's done just the most beautiful job on it it's my first kind of illustration illustrated book that's really exciting and uh it is about the eponymous young miss scarlet fife who is a nine-year-old girl who has very big feelings and unfortunately as is the way with nine-year-old girls often these big feelings don't entirely fit inside her all of the time and therefore when she's angry or worried or sad, out it all comes but uh in this first book she sort of loses her temper one time too often her auntie's engagement party and she has warned under the worst sanction that you can possibly have on pain of losing her trip to super mega awesome sicky fun world uh, that she is not to lose her temper again before her auntie's wedding in a few mm. weeks time so she is now in a position where she's trying to push these feelings down all of the time so she doesn't lose her temper so she doesn't lose her trip to super awesome mega sicky fun world um but as is the way as i say in the book you know feelings are like slime in a party bag they will find their way out and the more <laughs> that Scarlet. Tries to push her feelings down, the more they start to physically manifest all around her. So uh, when she pushes down her anger, things literally explode around her. So it could be her teacher's smoothie or the shepherd's pie in the school canteen. Or uh, when they go to the wildlife park, a big pile of elephant poo. Uh, when she's anxious or worried, things start to wobble. Uh, and when mm. she's sad, a little storm cloud uh, appears and starts to rain. So she, she has to learn to manage her feelings in a, in a healthy way.
0: Oh, fun! That sounds amazing. I love it. I
1: love these books. I love all my books. I love. I love everything. I love you. I love it. They've been great fun to write
0: uh how is it difficult writing for a younger readership was that a bit of a change no it's brilliant <laughs> I love it look no, I, I can't see this podcast but
1: here's what I normally write which is 60,000 words of vice fine. here's 30,000 words of <laughs> nice. five. so straight away you know that's a lot easier but I've absolutely loved it it's the first um, first person book I've written as well so okay. and I got to, to write in a sort of inner character's voice which I've absolutely loved and I have you know I have four children two of whom are of the female persuasion and sort of inhabiting the the, the brain of a nine-year-old girl again which turns out to be very easy for this 41 year old woman Um, was joyful so it's just been lovely i say working with Chris has been a joy and yeah I'm really excited about the series I hope hope people enjoy it
0: brilliant now we're nearly out of time but before we finish I've got three questions that we ask all our guests (laughs) who in the children's book world do you really admire and why
1: I mean, just so many people. I mean, I'm in awe of every illustrator. As somebody who cannot draw a bath, you know, anybody does that. And I say working with Chris on Scarlet has been joyful. I've, I've had wonderful illustrators. Uh, Alexei Bitskoff for Gods and just Sawyer for Vi. Uh, so, I mean, everything they do just sends me into paroxysms of squealing joy. Um, I'm in awe. I mean, lockdown has, uh, not that I don't think any of us knew, but my love for booksellers is off the charts. Because I think you realise on... So on Amazon, people know what they're going to buy before they go there. I don't think people browse online in that way. You go there specifically to buy the book that you were interested in anyway. Because what the beautiful book fairies do is they, you know, they advise people and they point towards, as you say, lesser known authors like me who've not got a big celebrity following. Um, you know, so we might want to have a go at this, and I know, you know, we've all missed that terribly. So you now I'm in awe of booksellers because they do such wonderful work in, you know, bringing our books to to the masses. And then, of course, there's my big author buddies. I mean, you know, I love M.G. Bennett's a big pal of mine and Lisa Thompson's a big pal of mine. And Piers Torday, I am going to marry the second. He agrees to leave his husband and marry me. And then uh, <laughs> that's all going to happen. So it's a really, you know, children's publishing has got a lot of really lovely, warm people in it. And, you know, all just trying to get kids to read. I mean, we're all trying to do the same thing at the end of the day. And it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's a lovely community to be a part of.
0: Lovely. Uh, What is the best thing about making and selling children's books in the UK? Finishing
1: them. That's definitely a big highlight. I've just finished both Vice by Two and Scarlet Three this week. And so I'm like, Happy day! <laughs> um it's it's the interaction with your reader I think that mm-hmm. that is so joyful. I mean, you know, I have that you know it's been lovely to have a year at home after after a few crazy years, but that kind of you know, meeting that kid for whom your book is so special and having a chat and then showing you their their dogged copy and um being able to chat with them and interact with them and the letters that you get. I, I mean that's so special. And I think we're all champing at the bit, to you know, get get back out and, and meet our readership again.
0: Lovely. And what are you most looking forward to in 2021? What, well I've got
1: a few sort of nice things coming up so obviously you know, uh, Vi's out and Scarlet's coming out which is lovely mm. I'm working on a couple of exciting new things that I'm really really looking forward to but I think I, I'm really looking forward to going back to festivals and events the bookings are slowly they're starting to kind of tentatively like just pencil it in, just pencil it in, pencil it in um, and you know I'm, I'm really kind of looking forward to that and just kind of cracking on with the next thing you know I've, I've, Vi and Scarlet will be finished in the next few months and uh Figuring out where where my strange and curious odyssey takes me next. Lovely.
0: Um, and uh, before we go, have you got any little hints or tips for anyone who who sells funny children's books and might help them get their books into the hands of readers? oh yes i think i mean get out there to them is the big Mm. one you know go to schools go i
1: I think we all we like the top line pr you know we like to see our names in in newspapers and magazines and you know brilliant brilliant publications like the bookseller Mm. um but that is you know that is your five minutes your 15 minutes of fame really it's about getting out there and getting to because what you know i've talked about some of the harder sides of, of comedy children's publishing but the the big upside is kids love us you know kids love funny books whenever there's any survey of kids reading habits funny books always come out top so when you can get there and get to your readers you know you will be met with open open arms so you know engage with schools support teachers um, you know get involved and yeah get out there and, and meet your readership because that's actually you know that those are your people so go and embrace them
0: that's almost it for this series of chapter and verse, the art of selling children's books. It has been a real pleasure to interview so many brilliant authors. And if you have missed any episodes and want to hear from people such as Elle McNichol, Adam Kay, or Ben Miller, you can catch up on all your favourite podcast platforms. For our last episode, we have something very special lined up. We will be broadcasting live from the Bookseller Children's Conference, and we will be talking about the phenomenon that is BookTok. You'll be able to listen to that episode live at the conference if you are coming on the 21st of September and for everyone else it will be available from the 22nd of September. I hope you enjoy the show.